Hi, and welcome to That One Conversation, the podcast where we share those conversations that have formed us into the person we are today, and in doing so, they create a ripple effect of positive change, all from That One Conversation. I'm Laurie Rowe, the host of this podcast, and I'm on a mission. My mission is to create connection, community, and change through the curation and cultivation of conversation. Join me each week as my guests share about that one conversation that changed their lives, because it might just change yours too. I'm really thrilled today to get to interview one of my favorite people in the entire world, and that is my dear cousin, Karen Cook. We grew up together. If we could have been sisters, we probably would have been, although sadly, we don't talk enough every day right now that we would eligibly be sisters. But I love my cousin, Karen. She is just an incredible person. So welcome today to that one conversation, Karen. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be part of your new podcast. One of the reasons that I wanted to invite Karen to be a part of that one conversation is because Karen has had some pretty incredible things happen in her life over the last probably 10 to 15 years that have really shaped her into the person that she is. We've dialogued a little bit, and when she was willing to come on and share about that one conversation that she had, I've learned more about how that one conversation that she's had in her life really has formed her into the person that she is today, and I think even the person that she's becoming. I'm really thrilled to bring this conversation to the world today because I think that Karen has so much to offer and so much perspective on specific circumstances. So I'm going to just start this conversation, Karen, with you sharing with us about that one conversation that changed everything for you. And I'd like for you to set it up. Where were you living? How old were you? And then transition into who it was that gave this conversation to you. What was the conversation? And then we're going to talk about what that conversation meant for you. So this conversation happened when my family and I were living in Stockton, California. We lived there for only about 18 months. And so I can sort of narrow it down to age 11 or 12. Uh, I was in fifth and sixth grade during that time. I had the same teacher for fifth and sixth grade, Mr. Jerry Chandler. And he was a really important person to me. And he had huge influence over me at that time in my life. He was just a really wonderful man. He was also a pastor and just a, just a fantastic teacher. And he just was very encouraging. So the conversation happened one day when the classroom was apparently pretty uh, rambunctious and he had to get on to everyone and tell everyone to settle down. And I was always very sensitive to being in trouble. I couldn't stand to be scolded or for anyone to think negatively of me in any way. And I hadn't actually gotten in trouble, but I thought I was in trouble because everyone was in trouble and I just started crying. So he took me out in the hallway And I don't remember his exact words, but he said at first to me that I hadn't done anything wrong and he didn't want me to think that I should be upset, that he was not upset with me. And then he said to me that I was just very special and he knew that God had really big plans for me someday and that he was going to use me in a very special way. And I just never forgot that. That was the most encouraging thing that he could have said to me in that moment or any other moment. So what do you think were the circumstances in your life that made those words at that moment really stand out to you? Well, I was definitely already really close to the Lord at that time in my life. And I was seeking him. You know, I had a quiet time every day. I was praying and reading my Bible every day. So I was really ripe 
for that kind of encouragement. And I think, you know, we're from a family of high achievers and our family business is ministry. And so, you know, I was already thinking like, where do I fit into this picture of what our family does? We have a lot of music in our family and I was at that time doing a lot with music. So, you know, of course I had in my mind that specifically that maybe music was in my future, maybe ministry was in my future. There were a lot of things that I could see turning into something that seemed really important, but I probably wasn't expecting that so much until, until Mr. Chandler said that. And then it just kind of fit into the way that I wanted to see myself and I wanted my life to be, to be that something that counts for God. And also probably common to a lot of kids just wanted to have big plans for my future. So that was something I pretty much anyone wants to hear at that age is that they're going to do something important with their life. That's pretty much what I remember of my mindset at that age. For those that don't know how Karen and I are related, we're first cousins, our dads are brothers. Karen mentioned, and I think it's a little funny, but it's ridiculously true, that the family business has been ministry. For both of us, our dads were at different times in their lives and in our lives in full-time ministry. In addition to our dads being in ministry, our grandfather was also a pastor. We just grew up in the church where that was our livelihood. That was what we knew. And so I could see on one hand, it could have been received. Of course, God has something special for me. But it sounds like that conversation was really aha. My eyes have been lifted and seen that God actually does have something special for me. Yeah, I would say that being in our family, there is an expectation from my parents. My parents were so encouraging to me when I was growing up, and I always knew that they thought I was special and would do something special. But for this person, Mr. Chandler, to say that to me just had a lot more weight because he didn't live with me. He didn't know the ins and outs of my personality in that way. So for him to have seen something special in me, and I thought he was so special, and he didn't have the bias that our family members would have. As a parent, I'm always telling my children, God has something so special for you. You are made for a purpose bigger than what we could ever imagine. I mean, I have so many affirming ways of reminding my children of who they serve and why they serve and that God has something for them. It's interesting because I'm thinking about a gift that one of Carter's teachers gave him when we left Virginia and he really cherished it. It had a phrase on it that was very affirming. It was so personal for him. And I think when that person outside of our family or outside of our norm that we really respect gives us a conversation like that. It carries weight that we can't imagine until we receive that, you know? It's different than coming from our parents. So what's interesting though is that you mentioned you thought maybe you would go into ministry yourself or that you would maybe be a musician. And yet that's not the career path that you pursued coming out of high school and going into college. Tell us a little bit about how that conversation did or didn't impact the career path that you then pursued. I think it has impacted me pretty much every day and every decision that I've made. When I was 11 or 12, I only knew the world of ministry. So I just thought, I love God, that surely that I was going to be in vocational ministry. And for a woman, that pretty much meant be a missionary. So I thought for many years that I would be an overseas missionary and I thought I would go into some sort of medicine like veterinary medicine or or human medicine and go as as a physician because I developed a love of science when I was in high school and the love of music kind of fell to the side and I really just branched out into an area that our family did not know which is science but when I was in college 
just kind of follow my heart. I've always asked God to align my heart with his so that my desires were his desires. And then I could just follow my heart, knowing that I was following his will. And that kind of led me into science. So I ended up pursuing a degree in neuroscience. And then from there, I got a job at Pfizer doing research and development for several years. And then from there, I went on to do some other jobs within the life science industry using my neuroscience background, but also doing some more business and consulting type roles that needed my technical knowledge. And that is the career that I ended up in. And it wasn't ministry at all. But I still felt like my mission field was my coworkers. People who believe in biology tend to think that we came from a bunch of goo originally and then have evolution as origin of species. And so to be a biologist and to believe in God as creator made me very different than almost everyone around me. So I definitely still felt like I had a purpose there. Uh, not only was I working on science to help health and well-being of humans, which I feel like is a very noble calling. I also was trying my best to impact the people that I spent every day with. And I was able to have some impact in people's lives for the Lord. So I always felt like I still had a purpose. It just didn't necessarily fit into like the, the family mold that I had come out of, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that when you live with the overarching belief and understanding that God has something special for you and God is using you, like you said earlier, you live every single day believing and knowing in your core being, I'm here for a purpose. I'm here for something that, you know, God is leading me. God has a, a blessing on my life. And even the prayer that as a high school and college student, you would pray that let your ways be my ways. As children, we knew each other and loved each other and were in each other's lives. I can testify that you did have such a heart for God, a pure heart. You were always in pursuit of righteousness and what was right and pure and holy and of God. I went to a Christian college, you went to Auburn and you went on and did graduate work in the state school system as well in Florida. I so admire that in non-Christian environment, your pursuit of God, your desire to serve him, your willingness to pursue his ways and to make his ways your ways is so amazing because not everybody, especially people that do grow up in the home of, of a minister, not everybody pursues his ways. And so it's so clear to me that God has always had his hand on you and has always had something so special for you because in that world of science, of the brain, you are so uniquely gifted. God gave you that gift. He had something special for you in that community. And I want to dig in a little bit more into the neuro side of your studies, because this is something that you and I text about, you know, from time to time about the brain, because I have limited knowledge of the brain and you have so much more intimate knowledge of the brain and thinking about the part of the brain that is kind of your expertise. Would you put a little flesh on that? And then I want to transition over to kind of what's happened over the last 10 to 15 years and why that's perhaps a bit more ironic. Sure. So a lot of people think of neuroscience at um, sort of the, the, the brain level and looking at different parts of the brain anatomically and understanding what they do. But my specialty was much more on the molecular level. 
and I was actually studying for the most part, I did a lot of things, but the most, my expertise is in a kind of protein called an ion channel, which conducts electricity in the brain. And that is how the brain works. And that is how the brain sends information to the rest of the body and to different parts of the brain. The brain actually has lots of different organs within its big organ. And those pieces speak to each other through electricity. So I was able to amazingly get in a laboratory where I learned how to measure electrical activity of individual cells and how we can change that. Those ion channels and proteins similar to those are targets for drugs, for new drugs to help people with specifically psychiatric disease. So I was trained well in the, the activity of proteins in the brain that, that have to do with, with mental health and psychiatric illness and what, what happens when things go wrong with people's mental health and they end up with illness. I was very blessed to be trained in those areas so that I have a, a pretty decent understanding of the biological basis of um, mental health and mental illness. So what's so fascinating about your journey, Karen? is that due to circumstances beyond your control, you had to leave work. That's because you were diagnosed with a mental illness. And I'd like for you to explore that, share with us what you're comfortable sharing about the mental illness or mental illnesses that you were originally diagnosed with and then what became the diagnosis and the irony of the part of the brain that you've become so intimately familiar with and the impact that that has had on your life now. Looking back in my history, I can see mental illness into my early childhood, but I did not know, of course, that I had mental illness. Throughout my 20s, I started struggling. I didn't know what was wrong. I just thought that I was really anxious. And when I was 30, I had what you might call sort of a mental breakdown, if you will. And I was diagnosed with anxiety. I was treated for about 10 years for anxiety. And actually, I had even been treated for depression early in my college years. So I had been on medications as early as age 19 to treat depression and anxiety. But it turns out that I was underdiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And my actual diagnosis, which I found out when I was 39, after 20 years of uh, being on and off medications, is that I have bipolar disorder. And the medications used to treat anxiety and depression really make bipolar disorder worse in, in a lot of people that have it. And that's how I ended up finding it because I went into what is called a manic episode. So in bipolar, we have elevated mood and we have low mood, which would are known as mania and depression. So I went into a, a manic episode for several years and uh, praise God, it didn't get more out of control than it did because it can be very destructive in people's lives. But I finally fell apart once for all, where I had zero function left. I had to leave my job pretty much overnight because I was so depressed. I was in such a terrible depression, which was a result of the mania that I had been. You, you really can't be manic for very long before you fall into a deep depression. So that's what happened when I was 39. I quit my job because just so I could be honest that I wasn't, I, I knew I wasn't able to do it anymore. So I went to my employer and said, this is what's happening. I think I have bipolar disorder. I know I can't work right now. So we parted ways on good terms. And then I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I also have very se severe obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. 
And I do have severe anxiety as well. And probably a couple of other disorders that have not really been fleshed out because the bipolar really takes all of the attention in my therapy. So that's what we work on. So that was seven and a half years ago that I left my career and I went through a a suicidal depression that lasted, it's really hard to say, probably three or four years. And then since then, I've been in sort of less, less depression, but I've never really recovered from that depression. So I would still say that now I I struggle with depressive symptoms. I struggle with manic symptoms as well. Um, You can get both at the same time, unfortunately. So that's kind of where I am right now. So I'm, I am a much, much recovered, but not fully recovered. And in the meantime, decided that I wanted to go back to school. So I'm also a student at Dallas Theological Seminary working on my master's degree. I want to go back here, keeping in mind that the overarching conversation that changed your life was that God has something very special for you and is going to use you in a special way. I want to keep that in mind as we dig a little deeper into the differences between mania and depressive. I want people that hear your story, I want them to understand about what this mental illness looks like. And then I want us to also flesh out a little bit more what it looks like biologically, but then also what it looks like biblically. And how this conversation that you had is still an overarching theme in your life. Because I think they're all really important things to talk about. So first of all, going back, you were misdiagnosed for 20 years, right? Yes, correct. How often do you think that happens? All the time. Especially with bipolar disorder. It's very hard to diagnose unless you have a really extreme manic episode. And some people do have that starting around age 17 or in their early 20s where they like will be very obviously manic. But I have type 2 bipolar disorder. And what I have is really characterized as hypomania. And hypo just means less. So it's less extreme mania. What would be an example of your hypomania? Mania in general is increased energy, less sleep. A lot of vigor, that's how I would characterize myself. I just have more vigor that I can apply to everything in my life. So I work more hours. I sleep less. I try for bigger and bigger goals in my life. So for instance, when I've been manic, I will run. I do a lot of running. And so I've run many, many full marathons during manic episodes. I don't tend to run those when I'm not manic. But when I'm manic, I just want to achieve more. I want to do more. I have more energy available to apply to whatever it is that's important to me at that moment. But since I'm such an overachiever anyway, these characteristics seem like Karen to everyone, So, including myself. So it's really hard for a, a doctor who doesn't know you to diagnose you with bipolar when if you're not having full-out psychosis, which is like hallucinations or delusions, it's hard to characterize uh, a hypomania. And so depression for in me looks like anxiety. So that's kind of why I think that anxiety was pretty much the main diagnosis that I had. One doctor when I was 19 diagnosed me with minor depression. You really can't blame the, the professionals. It, it happens to a lot of people with bipolar disorder. Can you talk a little bit about how your understanding of the brain and your diagnosis are related, if at all? Sure. Yeah, it's it's actually a huge connection in my life. You may be aware that in the church and in our society in general, there's a lot of stigma associated with mental illness. 
And a lot of people in the church think that people with mental illness actually just have a spiritual problem. And that if they get right with God, if they pray, if they repent, that things will get better. But since I was trained from the age of like 22 about the biological basis of mental illness, and there is actually dysfunction in the brain, physiological dysfunction that has nothing to do with your spiritual life. And when those things go wrong, it's like having high blood pressure. It's like having diabetes or cancer. It's just that your body is not functioning the way it's supposed to. And I became convinced of that long before I knew that I actually had that problem secure in God, that that is the way it happens. So that when I received the diagnosis, I did not for one instant think that I was sinning, that there was something in my life that was spiritually wrong. God always gave me that assurance that that was not the case, that this was a real illness, just like any other illness, and that I needed to deal with it in that way. And that also that it's really important for me to share this in the church with people who are mentally ill or with family members of people who are mentally ill to help them to understand that this is not something to go to the person and say, you just need to pray more or, you know, you need to get right with God. What's wrong in your life? You can't do that to people who are suffering to such a degree from mental illness, you know, to have someone come to you and say those things is terribly painful. And it has happened to me, but I have no problem defending myself and defending others in this way. Yeah. And, you know, we talk a lot about my daughter, Daisy, and she's been diagnosed on the spectrum. She also has a lot of anxiety. She's had two surgeries for her brain condition that she has. I think mental illness is one of those conditions where externally everything looks fine. You know, I tell people, I tell my other children, if Daisy was in a wheelchair, if Daisy had been born without a limb, if Daisy was blind, if she was deaf, whatever, people's response would be different. But because it's in the brain, which you cannot see, you assume the person is quote unquote normal until you began to realize they're not exactly normal, you know, whatever normal is. You know, as a mom, it's so hard because I see beyond the external, I know what's going on inside. It hurts me so much when people maybe see an outburst from her or see the way that she struggles socially or in any number of ways that someone with a, a brain that functions differently acts. It is so disheartening when people judge me or her. I can remember very clearly one time being in a grocery store and she was having a major outburst. This older couple walked by and they, they made some really unkind comments about my parenting and about her. I wanted to go, you don't know what's going on here. Like, how can you be judgmental? How can you assume that you know what is going on in this situation? As it relates to mental illness, it's, it's the same. Like, how can I know what you're going through? How can anybody know what someone is dealing with inside of their body? Even when someone has cancer or any other major disease or illness, we don't know until we've walked a mile in their shoes. And for the most part, we haven't. We want to judge, and yet at the same time, we have no reason to judge. Karen, let's transition to talking about what you're doing now. You're in seminary, and I'm curious what made you decide to go back to seminary and what the journey of going through seminary has been like 
after your years of studying science, what it's been like to now transition over to studying the Bible. My desire to go to seminary just really came from when I stopped working and had time to really study the word in ways I hadn't before. It just made me want to know more, to know God more, to know the Bible more. And I feel like I have been gifted with teaching and I want to handle the word well. I don't want to be an irresponsible teacher. So for someone who loves, I'm a lifelong learner. I love school. So for someone like me and that personality, when I realized that teaching is probably the kind of ministry that I will be doing for the rest of my life, my first impulse is go to school, right? So I can learn how to do it right. You know, going to seminary just to have a closer relationship with God is not necessary, obviously, but that just seemed like the route um, for me. And then with the teaching added on, it didn't have anything to do with mental health necessarily, but I do bring that into conversations that we have in school a lot. And it's been interesting that we do talk about mental illness and it's even in the few years I've been there, it, the awareness has grown a lot and I don't ever get judgment at my school for mental illness um, but we've talked about it in the in the context of the fall. And we also talk about things like sexual and gender identity issues, all of these in the context of the fall, right? Because we're living in a fallen world and we're all fallen people. And that that affects each of us differently. And in my case, you know, I have this very serious medical condition, which is mental illness. And if we were not living in, in the fall, and if I wasn't a fallen person, I wouldn't have it. But I do. I, that's not to say that it's because of my sin. It's because of Adam's sin and because of all of our sin that we live in a fallen world and that we're each affected. Daisy is affected because she's living in a fallen world. You know, she's affected with her illness and we each have our things at different times in our lives. So that would be the link. I think biblically, biblically it's just get, just learning to look back at Genesis 1 and the perfection that God created and then Genesis 3 in the fall and being able to see myself in that context. So that just, again, removes blame from me for having this illness, right? Because it could be anyone that could have any mental illness or any other kind of illness because our bodies are fallen right now. They will be perfect one day, but right now they're fallen. I think this is such an important message for, for believers, for Christians to understand that no matter what the illness is, this is a result of the fall. We live in an imperfect world. God's design, God's desire for us is wholeness, is health, is wellness. Because of where we live in this fallen world, we, we won't have that in its entirety. We won't know it. Even on great days when we feel vibrant and healthy and youthful and like we could live forever, that is but a foreshadow, a tiny sliver of what our completely 100% redeemed and healthy and holy bodies are going to be like. And that is going to be uh, such an incredible experience when we take take on that that newness of life that we're promised. I think, Karen, one of the things that I have loved watching develop in you, and now that I know more about this conversation with Mr. Chandler, I, I think I understand a little bit more of it. You have never spoken about mental illness and its effect on you in any other way but to say I know God has a purpose for this there are not a lot of people that can so confidently be in pain and at the same time know that God has a purpose 
And so I would love for you to, to tell us a little bit more about this confidence and how you believe that God has a purpose through your pain. God has a purpose for all of our pain, first of all. Um, but I think the reason that I've been able to endure it is just because God came after me. He wooed me to himself at a really young age. And I've always loved him and I've always wanted to please him. And I was convinced, partially because of Mr. Chandler's conversation with me, that there was a plan for me. So the minute when I was 30 and I was first diagnosed with anxiety and I had had a a mental breakdown where I had to take a leave of absence from work to deal with it, I knew immediately this is God's plan for my life. This is it's not his whole plan. It doesn't define me, but it definitely refines me. And he has a purpose in it for me personally and that I grow through my suffering in him, and there in ways that I could never grow. I grow in him, closer to him. I see him differently because of my suffering. So it benefits me. Whatever God does is best for us and it's for his glory. So you always have to remember this is best for me. But it's also best for other people because it is his purpose for me. So I am happy to put myself out there and talk about what I've gone through, even when people judge me. Because I know that it's what God wants me to do. It's, I mean, because Mr. Chandler helped me to know that there was a purpose, at least one. And I think we all have more than one purpose. But there are maybe two or three main purposes in my life. And this is one of them. And as soon as it was revealed to me that I had mental illness, I understood the biological basis for it. I felt no judgment from God. I just felt closeness. And from that, I just felt like, okay, whatever I need to learn, whatever I need to do to turn this into a ministry, that's what I'm going to do. And I can only do that through the strength of God because he's been with me by and by my side through every instant of my life. So it's certainly no credit to me that I don't have bad feelings about having mental illness. I'm not thankful for it. Well, on most days, I'm not thankful for it. But like I said, I would not know God the way I know him. If I had, if he hadn't hadn't been with me through such terrible and dark times that I would not trade that for anything in the world. And I wouldn't trade the opportunities that I've had to talk with people and try to help them and encourage them through their mental illness. I wouldn't trade that for anything in the world either, because that is definitely one of God's purposes for me. I love everything that you've said. What's even more remarkable to me is that you said when I was first diagnosed with mental illness, I knew immediately there was a biological reason for this. So I never, ever even thought about judgment. What a gift God gave you. He had already prepared you to know, hey, this is how it works in your body, in your brain. This is what's going on. And I created you and you know this. And then that you could shift into healing. You could shift into knowing that you had a purpose really key era of your life was going to become pivotal in what you're doing for the kingdom. I have a couple other questions or thoughts. I know that several times you've told me that you believe God is is calling you and equipping you for the next season of life and of ministry. And that's speaking and sharing about your story and teaching. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about this and what that looks like in your life. Well, and there are so many ways I have no idea what's going on. And in so many ways, it's very exciting. So I don't know what the, what the end result will be for me. And, and God taught me surely not to plan too far ahead. 
because he sheds light on my path just one step in front of where I am. He doesn't show me five years out or 10 years out. He shows me the next minute, the next day. So I'm waiting until when I finish my schooling, and I'm not sure uh, when that will be because I don't really want to stop going to school. Even though I graduate in May, I'm uh, considering going further. So we'll see. But I believe that I've been gifted um, teaching and that I've always had the ability to teach. And I could have done it as a school teacher. I didn't, but I, I did actually teach in graduate school and as a, as a teaching assistant and I think it's something that just comes naturally to, to speak and write. And I'm so passionate about the Word of God that I want nothing more than to be able to handle it well, as I mentioned earlier, and to be able to teach it to others. And in the middle of that, certainly the story that I have about mental illness that I think is, is combined with teaching. I'm, I'm not sure in what ways necessarily right now. Because like I said, I don't know all of the future, but I can see writing and, and speaking as the outlets for all of this, whether encouraging people about mental illness, teaching just straight from the Bible that with in topics that have nothing to do with mental illness. I think it all comes together, though. And what's been really exciting in the last six months to a year in school is that I've started going back to my undergraduate degree, which was in zoology, actually. And I've started using zoology and in, in, as teaching tools and illustrations. And so when I set up teaching now for in my classes for projects and different things that I have to do, I've been bringing in my zoology background and combining that with theology from the Bible. And it's really exciting because it seems like no one else does that. And I didn't know. I just started using illustrations I'm passionate about. And I'm so passionate about life about biology, about zoology, which is animal life. And so I've just been able to go back and find parallels in the Bible with God's creation. I've been looking at killer whales, and they are very social animals, and they are able to be the apex predator of the ocean, which means they're the top of the food chain. And they can take down things as large as a blue whale, which is like the size of 10 city buses. I mean, it's a huge animal, and the killer whales are nowhere near that size. But they come together as a group in unity, perfect unity. And it is absolutely fabulous what they can accomplish. And I've been able to draw parallels with that to the book of Ephesians, where God talks to us about being unified as a church body, as his body and working for him. And and my point is, you know, if these whales can accomplish what they can accomplish through unity, what can we do as Christians if we would just be unified in the way that God calls us to be? So that's an example of one biological parallel. And I've been looking at um, humpback whales because they sing songs that are very complex and just talking about creation, always praising God and singing to God. So that's my next project. And I'm just looking, I have a list, I, like 20 or 30 ideas of, of biological things that are God's creation that shows humans ways to move forward, like shows his design for us. We can look at his very creative design in the world around us and say, oh, I'm creative because my God is creative and he has made me. If he can do this with a lesser being, then we are, you know, the, his prize of creation. And if he can do these amazing things in other parts of his creation, then what could he do through us? That is amazing. I love, I love that. You'll love to know that Carter was telling us last night at dinner 
so he's in debate. It just so happens that our pastor is the debate teacher this year for middle school. I mean, his like whole life is a debate, it seems like. Carter's more advanced. This is his third year of debate. Carter gets like the harder to debate sides of the coin. And so the current topic that Carter is researching and presenting is the idea, are animals and humans equal? So he has the side that animals and humans are equal, and he has to present his case for that. And so listening to him talk last night was, was interesting. I might should put him on the phone with you and let him pick your brain about some ideas there. But that was That's so amazing that you could actually use your understanding of zoology to deepen our understanding of the word, to awaken us to how God is using everything around us to pull together the whole story of his creation. That's amazing. You've mentioned that you lost touch with Mr. Chandler through the years. Do you have any idea where he is or have you ever been able to go back and thank him for the gift of this conversation that he gave you? I haven't, but I did get in touch with two of his two daughters who are close to me in age. It's been a few years now and I asked about him and they said he was retired and doing well. So it's possible that I might be able to reach him. And I thought about that a lot. Like if I could just talk to him or just send him a note in the mail or something to say, thank you. I would, I would love to, because he just has no idea the influence he had over me and, and how positive that was and how thankful I am. I would encourage you. That's what I call the paying it backwards. You know, you, you go back and you thank that person for the gift of that conversation that really changes you. I love that Mr. Chandler, that day that he took you out in the hallway, he probably had no idea that the power of those words, did he mean it? Yes, absolutely. But did he understand the power of that probably one minute conversation? what it was going to do in the life of this 11 or 12 year old girl and how it would become breath for you, life for you in ways that you never would have imagined. And I'm so grateful for my own selfish purposes that he gave that gift to you, but also for the purpose of just what God is doing in his kingdom through you. I'm so grateful that Mr. Chandler gave you that conversation and gave you that gift It is such a reminder that our words are powerful. Our words are breath and life. And, you know, yours is an illustration going back to Genesis that God, he's the one that spoke life. He spoke us into existence. He spoke this world. And so we know that the power of the spoken word is there. There is actually not even a word that would describe how powerful the spoken word is. This is such an example of the power of a spoken word in the life of someone, especially someone young. So I'm, I'm grateful to Mr. Chandler for what he's done. And I hope that you will take a moment to track him down. It might take more than a moment. Send him a note or, or whatever it is. Call him. I'm sure he would love to hear from you and tell him, you know, what a gift that would be to him to know how his words impacted you. The simple way to look at it is what he gave me was a word from God. And he didn't know that he was the instrument of God that day, but that's what he was. And we can be that too. Absolutely. We can all do that. Now, I wonder, have you ever used those words and given those that same conversation to anybody else? Have you ever said to somebody else what Mr. Chandler said to you? 
I think I came close in one situation. A friend of mine who is a new believer, she also has bipolar disorder. So at my church, when she started coming, they matched her up with me as a discipleship opportunity. And I told her in a few occasions how much I believed in her and how much I believe God had a plan for her. I didn't tell her exactly, you know, in the same words that Mr. Chandler used. I, I hope that I relayed to her my belief that God could use her and change her and, and make something really precious of her life. I think that you have a unique understanding that God has a purpose and a plan for each of us. And reminding people of that from your mouth is a gift that people have to be received. So I hope that you will do that because I look at you and I think, Karen knows that she's here for a purpose. And when you know that, you can share that with other people. Would you do me a favor? After today's episode, would you leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts? Those reviews are a form of podcast currency, and they will help others find out about that one conversation. I'd also love to hear from you. Hop over to my website, thatoneconversation.com, and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with me. In closing today, I want to remind you that one conversation can truly change the course of one's life. In a day and age where we can access people 24-7, there's no reason you can't call a friend, schedule a Zoom call, or meet someone for coffee to connect over conversation. Will you do that this week? Will you cultivate the conversations in your life?